Let's pray together. Father, we have proclaimed your praise, and we have just heard the song acknowledging how majestic is that name. Lord, as we turn now to your word in which you reveal attributes of that name, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive what you would have us to hear. Father, that you would remove distraction and error from my lips, God, so that what is experienced in the time that follows, God, is that which you desire for us to hear and know with our minds and to embrace with our hearts, God, such that come our time's end, we might leave and enact in obedience so that we might be more and more a picture of who you've called us to be as your children. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, how many have ever participated in team-building activities? And by team-building, I'm referring to games and assignments intentionally geared towards increasing an individual's understanding of their giftings, their place within a group, and how they might best contribute to the overall success of their gathering, whatever the ultimate purpose may be. How many of you have ever participated in team-building activities? Okay, I see some hands, I see some nods, so clearly some of us have, and so I would imagine that those who have, and possibly even some of us who didn't raise our hands or nod our heads, may have heard of a trust fall. How many of you are familiar with the trust fall exercise? Okay, very good. So, the trust fall exercise. This is one of those go-to team-building exercises because in this activity, for those who are unaware, an individual is forced to demonstrate their trust, hence the name, in their team. And in the trust fall, it's explained how one individual from the group will climb up on an object. It might be a ladder. It could be a table or something shoulder height off the ground. And this person will then face away from their team They'll place their heels on the edge of this object upon which they're standing, cross their arms, and then simply fall backwards. That's the entirety of their task. They simply fall, hence the name, and trust that their team will catch them. Has anybody participated in a trust fall? Okay, they're always great fun to watch, right? To watch, because as easy as this sounds and as certain as the outcome is, the ones falling always struggle to do the very thing that the activity is designed to test, which is to what? Trust, exactly. And I remember participating in one such event when I was in high school, and I'd been a part of our school's student leadership team, and our principal had sent our group off for a weekend to learn how to be better leaders. And over the course of these three days, we did all different uh, kinds of things. But I think the hardest one was the trust fall, at least for me. And, and it wasn't that I didn't trust my teammates, I did. It's just that when you fall backwards, there is absolutely nothing you can do to protect yourself, to save yourself. You can't see what's coming. You can't stick out any limbs to slow your fall. You can't protect yourself in any way. You are at the mercy of those who pledged to catch you, those that you're supposed to trust. <laughs> and man, that is hard, isn't it? Hey, we're not a trusting people by nature particularly those of us who've been hurt before. You know, what's the old adage? You know, once bitten, twice shy, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, you know, shame on me, or something like that. As human beings, we battle to trust. 
even when we know what the outcome is going to be. And church, this is the very struggle that I believe we see fleshed out in the lives of the people of Israel following their triumphant exodus from Egypt. God, true to his word, has led Pharaoh to drive them out. Now, it had taken time, time that their leaders had not anticipated, but God was faithful, and when they departed, they plundered Egypt like a victorious army. However, as we're going to see together today, when their circumstances changed, even though God forewarned them, they struggled to trust him. And friends, I believe we all share Israel's trust issues. And therefore, we need to be reminded this morning that the God of the Bible is faithful. The God of the Bible is faithful. And so that said, would you open your Bibles to Exodus and find chapter 14 this time. Exodus 14. And when we last saw Israel, they left Egypt for the promised land. However, rather than going through the Philistines' territory, which was the, the shortest route, most direct route, God led them towards the Red Sea by way of the wilderness. And he did so as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, both of which went before the people. This must have been the most incredible sight ever. God was leading his people. And then in chapter 14 and verse 1, we see God once again speaking to his people. And our text reads, Exodus 14, 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and to encamp near Pi-Heroth, between Migdol and the sea, there to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And let's pause right there just to make our first observation this morning, and that is that the God of the Bible informs his people of what's to come. And so as we've been studying this journey of Israel out of Egypt, the exodus and God's revelation of himself to his people, we have seen principles, attributes of the God of the Bible. And here we see the God of the Bible informs his people of what's to come. And this point isn't nuanced in any way. We've previously established that God can speak. In the very second sermon in our series, when Moses was still standing before the burning bush, God spoke. He engaged Moses verbally, audibly, comprehensively, and purposely. And this, we noted, was of great significance because it revealed God's accommodation of his fallen creation. In God's speaking, he communicated in such a way that what he said could not be misunderstood. Moses heard God and knew exactly what God meant. And friends, since we live in a world that is so confused in regards to all manner of things, realities, matters that we previously thought to be crystal clear, such as gender or, or marriage, even truth itself, to know that God revealed himself through the medium of human language assures us of an objectivity largely absent from the realm of religious inquiry. For most religions today are marked by the mystical, aren't they? The, the spiritual, where you pursue truth or enlightenment in activities that are grossly subjective and that cannot be authenticated. However, the God of the Bible revealed himself through human communication, language, 
And therefore, we may use our minds as well as our emotions as we seek to know him. Church, our faith is not, as the Danish theologian philosopher Doran Kierkegaard argued, blind. Our faith is not blind, nor is it uninformed. Rather, it is based upon God's word, which, as the Apostle John states in his Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, these things are all written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, our faith is rooted in an understanding of who God is as he has revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible. And thus, our God, church, our God is the God of the Bible, and we must guard our knowledge of him from becoming diluted, better, better yet, poisoned by details that are not contained in this book. We are not free to conceive of God as we would like him to be. And let me say that again. We are not free to conceive of God as we would like him to be. Rather, we have to, we have to know him as he's revealed himself. Now, if you would like to desire to understand God by your own means and at least acknowledge the distinct difference between your God and Scripture's God, because sadly, that term God is employed loosely today by a myriad of groups whose understanding is not constrained by the Scriptures, which is why we must be a people who know God's word. And here in our text, God speaks to Moses and informs him clearly of three things. First of all, God instructs Moses as to what the people are to do. What the people are to do. They're to encamp at a specific place near the Red Sea. Second, God informs Moses as to the purpose. By their actions, Pharaoh will believe that Israel's lost. And that then leads us to the third thing. And that's where God reveals what will take place once he has again hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh will pursue Israel. But in, in all of this, God promises that he will gain glory for himself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that he's the Lord. God clearly communicates with Moses such that he's Moses is under no illusions as to what the people are to do, why they are to do it, and what the outcome will be. And so we read in verse 4, so the Israelites did this. They did this. And Emmanuel, what I believe we see here is the glorious truth that God speaks to his people and informs them of what's to come. The God of the Bible communicates with us through words, language, this word, the Bible, such that we can know God's person and his plans. Why? Because we see the Israelites doing the very thing that God commanded. Communication had occurred. What God wanted took place. The Israelites did what God said. Now, I realize that this might seem like a very simple truth, but our society is so influenced by postmodernism and its rejection of absolutes that there are many, maybe even some here this morning, who struggle to accept how the words in this book can speak the truth, the truth. Well, there's a number who'd be willing to give it the a truth nod, only insofar as you consider it to be so. You know, it can't be the truth, though. And more dangerously, many argue that it can be interpreted, the Bible can be interpreted in many different ways because, well, language is itself a fluid medium, isn't it? But church, what I believe we see in our text is how God spoke and his people responded. To turn back meant what? To turn back, to encamp meant to encamp, and to gain glory over Pharaoh meant exactly what it said. Now, did it reveal the details as to how. 
Do these words give us the specifics as to how the Israelites were to turn back or to pitch a tent or how God would gain glory over Pharaoh? And I believe the answer is certainly not. The words God used communicated what God desired. And thus, we need not fear the empty accusations of others who argue that the Scriptures can't be trusted. Friends, these words are without error. And at the same time, we do need to use caution as we seek to understand God's word, that we don't lead it to say what it clearly doesn't say. We've got to be men and women of God, men and women who seek with the Spirit's guidance to rightly divide this word so that we might understand all that God has informed us is to come because the God of the Bible informs his people of what's to come. Now let's continue reading from verse 10 there in, verse, in chapter 14. Because verse 5 through 9 simply states that Pharaoh did exactly, surprise, surprise, what the Lord had said he would do. He believed the people were lost. He regretted letting them go. And because God hardened his heart, he mobilized his army along with all of his chariots, horsemen, and troops, and he pursued them, overtaking them where they were encamped. Thus, verse 10 we read, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would be, have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And let's pause here. Because I believe we can all see our second point this morning, which is that the people forgot God's word. The people forgot God's word. Now, to be fair, the statement that's given us at the conclusion of verse 4, it doesn't say anything more than that the people obeyed, right? Meaning that they turned around and they encamped where God directed them. And thus, as this response here, verse 10 through 12, reveals, I believe there were many who had not grasped God's explanation regarding the, His plan to gain glory for Himself over Pharaoh. Oh, oh, they'd understood the turning and camping bit, hadn't they? But not the glory plan. Now, we'd simply be speculating at this point if we attempted to ascertain what the people might have understood God to mean by his gaining glory over Pharaoh, but I believe that such a consideration at this point might be helpful. And so I'll explain why in just a minute. But to this end, it could have been that many of the Israelites believed that God would simply consume the opponents, the Egyptians, by his power, his death angel possibly, as he had all of the Egyptians' eldest children before they even left Egypt. And thus, God would gain glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Others... They may have envisioned any one of the other plagues that God had brought about upon Egypt as preventing Pharaoh and his armies from ever even leaving the land. And thus God would have gained glory over his enemies. Or maybe they considered God would use the Philistines or any other military entity to serve as their protectors and thus gain glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But we can't be sure, but what we can know is that Israel clearly had not expected to see what they saw the moment they woke up opposite Baal Zephon. Because the moment they saw Egypt's armies marching towards them, 
all memory of God's work is driven from their minds. At this point, the people displayed that all too familiar grass is always greener attitude, didn't they? You know the one I'm referring to. They completely forgot about the horror of slavery, the suffering imposed by their taskmasters, the agony of making bricks and the sting of the whip. All the Israelites could see was the dust rising from Egypt's armies. All they could feel was the heat of the desert, the sense of the unfamiliar, and they longed for what they knew. But church, don't we behave in the same way? Don't we also have God's word that informs us of his character and promises regarding our very own future? And yet when the hordes of disease approach or the armies of uncertainty, be they economic or, or familial even, we freak out and we forget all that God has promised. And it's right here that I believe we see the benefit of having speculated just a moment ago on Israel's sentiments. Because we, I believe, display the same range of interpretation when it comes to our life circumstances as viewed through the lens of God's word. We have God's promises to take care of us, provide for us, to be with us, to sustain us, to work all things together for our good and his what? Glory. There's, there's that word. And we, like the Israelites, hear glory, don't we? And we envision a life without trouble. We interpret this promise to mean our journey through the life's desert will be problem-free, pain-free, people-issue-free even. But then when Pharaoh shows up in the form of cancer or job loss or loss of a loved one, financial hardship, change, whatever, we, like the Israelites, begin to pine for the past. All the things were like they used to be. Why? I, I thought life with Jesus was supposed to be easier. I thought following God would make my problems flee away. I've always believed once I got saved, things would always be as they were. They'd just be without my frustrations with things as they were when they were that way. I, the truth be told, now that I've come to know Jesus, I feel like I've struggled with things like never before. Friends, in these moments, I believe we reveal that we have forgotten God is who he says he is in his word. We've forgotten or we've bought into the lie that his word isn't objective. And so we demonstrate we're interpreting our circumstances as was Israel in this instance with our glory as the end goal. The people forgot God's word. But Moses reassured them they had nothing to fear. Their deliverance didn't depend upon them for they could not and had not saved themselves in the first place. Rather, the Lord would fight for them just as he had promised. All they had to do was be still. In truth, the fact that the Israelites saw the Egyptians was a good thing because it confirmed all that the Lord had said. Moses' words, verse 13, reflect the fact that had they not seen the Egyptians, that would have been cause for concern. And Emmanuel, I pray that, that this morning we all hear and heed these words of encouragement, for that's what they are. In light of all that we've experienced in the first half of this year, and in light of what you may even be experiencing right now, hear God's word. You need only be still, and God will fight for you. All the hardships that you're facing as you faithfully follow him are exactly what was promised us by our Savior. And so if you're a follower of Christ, know that in his word, God informs us of our future. And despite our tendency to forget, he still protects us by his presence. The God of the Bible protects his people by his presence. And this is our third point for this morning. And it's drawn from verse 15 through 20. So would you look back with me to our text there and find verse 15? 
Exodus 14 and verse 15 is where we read these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front, from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Whew, man. Facing the approaching Egyptians, the people call out to the Lord, which was their one saving grace in this whole thing. But the Lord informs the people to stop their crying and to prepare to move. He directs Moses to raise his staff like we spoke about with the children and to divide the water so that the people might pass through on dry ground. But the Lord also indicates that the Egyptians will follow. And before we look specifically at God's presence in regards to his people's protection, I just want to point out the reality of this miracle, for that's what this is. This miracle as it's reflected by the actions of the Egyptians. Just for a moment, consider the professionalism and the effectiveness of these Egyptian charioteers. These men were elite warriors. And they would have never endangered themselves or their animals by driving into a bog. And so when we read of a divided sea and dry ground, I believe we see evidence of the comprehensive, the, the supernatural manner in which God divided the sea and dried the ground. I mean, for his people clearly walked through without becoming mired in the mud. And the Egyptian soldiers, while, yes, divinely ordained, they still pursued them under orders from Pharaoh and spurred on by what they could see. And church, I believe this is just one further example of the objectivity evidenced in God's word. Meaning we don't have to understand this miracle as reflecting something other than what it says in order to comprehend it. Rather, a close examination of this text reveals all the parties involved evidence the truth of what's described. God parted the waters. God dried the ground so that God's people could pass through. And while they're passing through, His presence the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them to behind them. Now, if you have an NIV, I realize that its rendering there suggests that the angel of the Lord and the pillar of the cloud could be separate entities. However, they're not. They're one and the same. And so what we see here is God, whose presence has been leading His people, as we discussed last week, purposefully, protectively, plainly, God's presence now moves to guard His people in such a way that one has light, while the other has nothing but darkness. And church, in this, this text clearly depicts a physical reality in that as God's presence separated Israel from Egypt, one was literally in the light while the other could see absolutely nothing. And yet I believe we also here encounter a spiritual reality as God's presence illuminated His people, enabling them to obey His word, while those who were His enemies those who desired nothing to do with him and were desperate to destroy his people, God's presence resulted in a 
pitiful darkness about which these Egyptians could do absolutely nothing. Now, I realize that such a spiritual differentiation this morning might strike some of us as odd because if we're familiar with the scriptures, we know that they declare that God is light and in him there is no what? Darkness, right. Further, Jesus proclaimed as we're familiar with John 8, 12, I am the what of the world? The light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in what? Darkness, but will have the what? Light of life, right. So we might struggle to see how can God's presence, described as it is here in Exodus 14 as light, how could it have anything but a physical meaning? In other words, how could God's presence be the cause of darkness, such as is attributed to the Egyptian experience here? And church, I believe the answer is God's justice. God's justice for while God is a loving God, and an attribute that we in our 21st century like to fixate on to the exclusion of all others, while God is a loving God, He is also just. Our God, the God of the Bible, cannot overlook sin, nor does He excuse our shortcomings, failings, and weaknesses. Therefore, those who have rejected Him, to those who have heard the gospel but desire nothing to do with God and His Word, those who believe that the Bible is just a, a book of silly myths and that Christians are to be pitied more than all people, to these adversaries of the God of the Bible, His presence is fearful darkness. The great British Baptist pastor theologian Charles Spurgeon once said, to some of us, the thought of God is joy. But to the ungodly, Nothing would be such good news as to hear that there was no God. Indeed, they find dreadful comfort in endeavoring to be skeptical and unbelieving. God has a dark side to sinners. His justice and His righteousness, which are the comfort of His people, are the despair of the wicked. Do you find the thought of God to be joy this morning? Do you find yourself drawn to His Word despite your many questions? Do you find yourself longing to be with His people despite the differences that they have to you and their oddities or peculiarities? Or do you catch yourself wishing while you're in worship that you could be somewhere, anywhere else? Do you find yourself disinterested in God's Word and on the occasion that you encounter it feeling like you just can't understand it? You just don't get it. And you can't see why this little guy gets up every week and seemingly lectures you from it. Why doesn't he just go outside with everyone else and, and do something good? Why don't they help people? I mean, if you, if you do feel this way, then I fear that you are as these Egyptians and God's presence is as darkness to you. You are dead in your sin and without hope in yourself. The gospel is as Paul described in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16. It's a savor of death rather than a fragrance of life. Friend, if this is your attitude this morning and it's been your experience in the past, then I pray that you would turn to God and that you would confess your sins and plead, plead for His grace. For if you don't, all that awaits you is spelled out in the Egyptian experience. Destruction. But if you turn to Jesus, if you repent and believe in Jesus, then you can know His love you can experience His light and find eternal protection in His presence because the God of the Bible 
protects his people by his presence. The God of the Bible informs his people of what's to come. He's promised there will be a day on which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Despite our failure to remember his word, he protects us by his presence graciously. And finally, the God of the Bible is faithful to his promises. This is the foundational attribute, if you will, upon which these previous have been built. But the God of the Bible is faithful to his promises. Our fourth point, and it's taken from verse 29 through 31. And so let's just skip over those which precede them because as with verse 5 through 9, verse 21 to 28 simply describes, surprise, surprise, the fulfillment of everything that the Lord had promised. However, in verse 29 it reads, But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord had displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. At the beginning, I asked if anybody had ever experienced a trust fall. And for those of you who have, you can appreciate the sensation that accompanies that moment that you land in the arms of your team. All the while, you're falling through the air. Your stomach is in your throat. Your arms are just screaming to grab out and grab somebody to slow you down. Your heart is beating and just won't stop. At the moment you arrive in the arms of your team, you know the truth that that entire exercise was purposed for. They are trustworthy. And church, I, I, this, this is what I believe God revealed to his people as they stood on the banks of the Red Sea. Looking back towards Egypt and seeing all of the bodies strewn across the beach. Can you imagine? I believe God's people finally grasped the truth. He is faithful. The Lord will do all he said he will do. The people saw and they believed both God and his servant Moses. And friends, this morning, if you're here today and you've been struggling with matters of faith, battling with disbelief and knowing whether, whether or not you can trust God, trust that he's there and that he can do all that this book says he can do, I pray that in this story this morning you've seen this, this isn't some subjective, over-spiritualized tale to which we're attempting to provide significance for life. Rather, this is an historical narrative. This is a salvific event that occurred in time. It involved a specific people and resulted in a real relationship with the God of the universe. And just as Israel experienced salvation, so can you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I pray that if you're here this morning and your life has been marked by the darkness that colored Egypt's experience, then today you've heard there's hope. There's the gospel. The God of the Bible is faithful. He promised to save his people and he did. And just as he saved Israel from Egypt, he will save you from your sin and an eternity of suffering if you will turn to him and believe. Would you repent and believe in Jesus today? And friends, if you're here and you're a part of our family and you already know and love Jesus, I pray that you've been encouraged. If you've been wounded in the past and 
you're struggling to trust in the future, if you've been hurt and you're hesitant now going forward, I pray that you've been reminded how our God is faithful. Now, this doesn't mean that you won't be hurt again because we're unfaithful. We're the problem. And often we disappoint one another, but our God is not. And he will never let us down. He, he calls for us to be faithful as he is faithful to us. So are we to be faithful to one another. So may we be one despite our tendency to hurt one another, to speak words that divide rather than edify, I pray that God would give us a unity that reflects His unity. Would you pray with me to that end as we close? Father, You are a God who is faithful. You are a God who does what He says He will do. And Father, You have said that if you confess your sin, that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We'll be saved. Father, if there are any here today whose eyes have been opened to the reality of their sin as they are the cause for all of their, their emptiness, all of their frustration and their, their seeming lack of belonging. God, it's their sin that has caused these things. Father, that they would confess their sin, would admit that they are in need of your salvation and would believe. Father, and for we who, who may be struggling to trust, Trust you with where we find ourselves. Trust others in whose midst you've placed us. Father, would you help us to display the faithfulness that you've shown us to others. Father, would we show grace as you've shown us grace. Would we love as you loved us. For in every instance, the way in which we're treated by others, be it positive or negative, God, is always a way in which we've treated you. Father, might you keep us mindful of that fact as we seek to be faithful to love one another so that our unity would reflect the unity that you are. Father, we praise you that you are a God who is faithful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.